Psalm chapter 51. Psalm, the 51st chapter. Psalm 51. And if you're physically able to do so, I do want to invite you to stand with me uh, to honor the ring of God's holy and written word. Psalm chapter 51. Let us hear the words of David, the repenter. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold. I was, sharp, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and the, in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness." O Lord, open you open my lips, and that my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you desire not sacrifice, else I would give it. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion, and build the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon your altar. Let's pray. Father, as we give ear to David the repenter at this point, our prayer is that you would help us. You would help us to hear the word that is given to us this morning. May you now... Grant your blessing upon your word and help us to hear and apply your word in, to our lives and hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Repentance is a doctrine that has fallen on hard times. People do not like to talk about repentance as much because it means that we have to then talk about holiness as well. And who wants to talk about both repentance and holiness? And so what, when we speak of repentance, what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say the word repent, right? It's a, it's a word that perhaps we have heard uh, at various times in our lives, you know, so-and-so repented, so-and-so um, was, uh, was repentant for their attitude or their words or 
they were they repented of their sin, right? We uh, have heard that, I'm sure, if you've been here any length of time. But what does that word, what does that doctrine even mean? Well, according to one source that I, I uh, consulted, it simply means this. To have a change of self, including the heart and the mind, that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, a new behavior, and regret over former behaviors and dispositions. Simply put, I think if you had to say what repentance is, repentance is simply turning away from sin and turning to God. Generally speaking, it's not a word that holds a lot of value in our world today. And in, and in the church uh, alone, it has fallen again on hard times. Why? Because truthfully, honestly, no one wants to admit that they were or are wrong much less to have to then make what they've done right, right? They, to try to make right what has been decimated by sin. But never fear, the world is at hand to tell us what we can do instead of repent. And so they offer us alternatives, alternative options instead of repenting. So we have, for instance, uh, the, uh, the ploy to cover up, to cover it up, to cover up our sin. The second is, well, you know, you can't really change anything now, so just turn over a new leaf. The third would be to simply blame it on our ancestors. Well, you know, it really isn't my fault, it's just the way I'm made, you see. Or we can blame it on a move or a change of jobs, or we can, we can just get a fresh start instead of repenting, right? Because after all, instead of changing my behavior, it's just easier to change the people around me, you see. Or we can make excuses. Well, I didn't mean to, or if you hadn't just, or if, if that person hadn't done, we make excuses. Or the world tells us that we can just be defensive. How dare you tell me that I have to repent? How dare you tell me that I've done anything wrong? How dare you? You are an even worse sinner than me. Right? And so we get defensive. And then there is to do anything but admit it. Quite honestly, I mean, we, we often see this, right? We often see this even in, uh, particularly I think this is framed well, even, in, uh, e- even as we're teaching our children what it means to follow, follow, uh, the, the, uh, follow in the steps of, of what the Bible teaches us. Uh, you know, uh, they don't want to admit it. Uh, I, I will never forget a young boy that uh, we, were, uh, we were offering respite care to years ago, uh, which is foster care, right, uh, the parents need a little bit of a, a, a break from the kids, so he comes over. I watch him punch his sister in the nose, and I said, why did you do that? He said, I didn't do it. I said, I just sat here and watched you. No, you didn't. He would not admit what he had done was wrong. And yet, we are often like that. We don't want to admit when we're wrong. However, God calls us as Christians to repent. And in our text this morning, I want to show us six actions, six actions from Psalm 51 that gives us, that, that the Psalm 51 gives us for how we are to walk on the path of repentance that leads to forgiveness and restoration. And so I've titled this sermon this morning, 
I think a very simple title, which is simply this, How to Repent. How to Repent. David gives us a great example of how to repent. After all, David has just been confronted before he's written this psalm by Nathan the prophet, and he's told David, he has said, David, you are the man, right? David, you killed Uriah. David, you seduced a woman. David, you have now tried to cover up your sin, and you, David, are the man. And David says, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against him. And so from that comes Psalm 51. And so I want to show you the six actions that David gives us for exactly what we're talking about. How to repent. When we say repent, what are we talking about? First, here's the first action that I want to show you. It's found in verse 1, actually, of Psalm 51. It says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness." According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So what is it, David, that you want, that God would have us understand from this that is the first way that we repent? Well, here's simply this. We need to ground our repentance in God's mercy. We need to ground our repentance in God's mercy. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, did you notice as we read through this, maybe you didn't, and that's fine if you didn't, right? I'll be honest with you, I didn't until I was researching this text to preach this week. Did you know that David utilizes a personal pronoun 34 times? 34 times. He says, I, me, my, I did this. This is my fault. This is on me. Right? This is not on you. This is not on Bathsheba because she was beautiful. This wasn't on Bathsheba because she was bathing, right? On, uh, you know, out in the open. This wasn't, this wasn't on Uriah, right? This wasn't on anyone else but me. I've done this. And did you notice as you go through the text that David connects these personal pronouns, I, me, my, to the Lord, and he uses personal pronouns for the Lord, uh, the Lord's activities or the Lord's actions, somewhere around 30 times. So when David says, I have done this, this is my fault, this is on me, he then moves on and he says, because I have sinned against you, Lord. I have done this, God. I have been the one to do this. And so let me say this, brothers and sisters, When we're talking about repentance, right, repenting of attitudes or actions or whatever the case may be, let me just simply say this. If we do not ground our repentance in God's mercy and in God's grace, what we will become is nothing more than legalistic Pharisees who go through the motions but never really mean it. And so we must ground repentance in God's mercy. And so David says God's mercies are the hopes, the grounds of his hope. And brothers and sisters, let me say this. God's mercy are the grounds of our hope. They are the foundation of our hope, right? It is the foundation of our hope. Ultimately, we see that David points us forward to the ultimate satisfaction and the ultimate uh, the ultimate grounds of mercy, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is the fulfillment of and and is the perfect expression of God's mercy and grace to us. But he tells us that God's mercies are the grounds, are the foundations for our hope. 
And then he shows us that there is a threefold grace here for our sin. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me show you what David says here about the hope, the grace that God has given for our sin. First, he says this, have mercy. Stop there. The first part of the threefold grace that God has given us for sin is mercy. It's, and, and, and David, when he says have mercy, he is, this isn't just a pleading. It is a pleading, but it is an imperative. It is a, it is a, it is a, a, a form of an urgent request that's being made, right? It is a, it's a pleading, but it's also so much more than just simply, oh, God, please have mercy upon me. It is, oh, God, if you don't do this, I am going to die. And so God has given the mercy God has been gracious and shown favor. David knows the mercy of God because he's previously experienced the mercy of God. And so God is being pleaded with to be gracious, to show favor, and not to give David what he deserves. Christian, this is the same hope that is ours in Christ, is that we would, in fact, see the mercy of God when we sin, that we would flee to Christ, who is the merciful grace and gracious expression of God's, God's plan of redemption given to us in Christ, that we would see that God's mercy saw us and sought us and bought us when we were still enslaved in sin. But Christian, it did not stop there for us. God's mercy is an ongoing reality for us from which we must continually flee back to when we have sinned that we may cry out in grace for his mercy. Then there's another, there's another part, there's a second part here, of this, this part two the, uh, of this, this threefold grace for sin. Notice what he says here. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Now what does he mean when he says loving kindness? Well, the word here is literally dealing with God's covenant faithfulness, right? And so what David is saying to God is God... I have not kept my covenant with you, but God, you are the God who keeps covenant and mercy. Even when I am faithless, even when I am not faithful, you remain faithful. And so not based on my actions, not based upon my activities, not based upon anything in me, but God, based upon who you are and the faithfulness that you have shared and shown previously, and I know you to be the God who keeps covenant loyalty and mercy, your loving kindness, I am asking you, not because of me, but because of who you are, you are not disloyal, but you are gracious and good. Even in the face of my ugliness and my wickedness, God, you are faithful, so please remain faithful to me. And then he says, the third part of this threefold grace for sin, right, is this. Listen to what he says here. According to, now notice this, the multitude of your tender mercies. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. We could also translate this, it also could be translated according to your abundant and tender mercies, right? Or according to the greatness of your mercies, or according, according to the greatness of your tender compassions. And so we see that God is a God of all grace. 
who in spite of our sin, in spite of our ugliness, in spite of our wickedness, in spite of all of this, God is so much greater in his grace than we could possibly imagine. You know, at times we sing the song, Grace That Is Greater Than All of Our Sin. And that is so true. God's grace come to us in particular in Christ has given us the hope and the beauty of grace has given us the hope and the beauty for, for in the face of our wickedness has given us the grounds to hope in God not because of us but because of Christ and so we look to Christ we hope in Christ we flee to Christ what is a second a second path of of, of repenting it's simply this We need to place our hope in God's forgiveness. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, look with me here in verse 51, 1 and 2 again. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Now notice now he asks God to do something for him. He says, blot out my transgressions. That's the first activity that he's asking God to do as a result of these. And then he says in verse 2, wash me thoroughly for my iniquity, and then three, and cleanse me from my sin. So there is a threefold activity of grace, right? We said mercy, uh, loving kindness, or, or his covenant loyalty, and we said abundant and tender mercies. And as a result of that, David now says, because of your threefold grace, threefold mercy, I'm going to ask you to do three separate things. And God's mercies are ultimately expressed through his forgiveness. God's mercies are ultimately expressed through his forgiveness. God forgives not because he must, not because we have some kind of hold on God, whereby we say, okay, God, you now have to do this. No, 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 that's not how that works. No, God has freely and sovereignly forgiven us of our sins in Christ And God continues, not because of our faithfulness, in spite, in fact, our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to us, and God expresses his mercy and his grace through his forgiveness so that we can, like David, cry out, blot out my sin, God. And notice that David does not ground any of this in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Did you notice that? As a matter of fact, he says, God, there is no sacrifice for this. There is absolutely no earthly sacrifice for what I'm asking you to do. There is no sacrifice that I can make. There is no, there's not, there, all the blood of the bulls and the goats and the rams and the lambs that I could possibly offer could never atone for my sin. And so he calls upon God to do this of his own accord, to which I might say this to you, brothers and sister. This is exactly what God did for us in Jesus Christ. God himself in Christ looked upon us 
and through his great mercy, moved by only his sheer grace and covenant of redemption that he had made among himself and among the, the persons of the other persons of the Trinity, chose to act so that he could, not based upon the sacrifices of men, not based upon the sacri- animal sacrifices of the old covenant, but now based upon a much greater and better covenant, the new covenant, based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood can now blot out the sins of our transgressions. I would say to you that that should even make a Baptist want to shout. The mercies of God are then found, are then found despite the bitterness of our sin. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in hoping, in hoping in God's forgiveness, it's not just that we're hoping that God forgives us, but that he forgives us despite everything he knows about us. And David uses three words here. In verses 51, 1 and 2, he uses the words transgressions, and he uses that in the plural on purpose. He talks about iniquity, And he talks about sin here in verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Right? He says, take away my iniquity. Take away my sin. So what is he asking God to do here? Well, let me tell you that David purposefully is inspired to use these three different words because they all mean something different. Transgressions are really why one of the reasons why David has to say, God, there is no sacrifice. Because you understand God has told David, David, you deserve to die for this, but I'm not going to kill you. And so David asks for God's help and his forgiveness in this based upon nothing more than who God is and his activity. Because in the old covenant, there was no sacrifice for what David had done. And so David uses the word transgression. And you say, well, how does transgression relate to the fact that David deserved to die? Because transgressions were willful rebellious activities that were intentional and willful. Do you know that under the old covenant, there was no sacrifice for willful disobedience? There was no sacrifice for willful treasonous disobedience. There were were sacrifices when people sinned, but the sin that was expected was not a willful rebelliousness, but rather an accidental transgression that was made not on purpose. David, in his sin, willfully rebelled against God's commandments and broke defiantly five of those commandments. And so David says transgressions. And then he says iniquity. And so what does he mean by iniquity? Well, he means to bend or to twist. In other words, to pervert from the way of truth and the path of of rightness or righteousness. And so when he says iniquity, he's saying, God, I have perverted your righteous paths in my transgressions. And do you notice that just like in the New Testament, in the book of James, David lists for us these things, these, these, these actions and activities that build off one another. Started off as a transgression, a willful rebelliousness that led to iniquity, him bending and perverting the truth, and then ultimately led to him sinning. 
This is no different than what James tells us in the book of James. James says that sin it deceives us, and it, then it, then when when we when we see it right giving birth to uh, we 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 allow it to take hold, and then it ultimately gives birth to death, right? And this is the same thing that David is saying. But in the midst of this, I don't want you, my brothers and sisters, to miss that there is breathtaking beauty here. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, the breathtaking beauty of God's grace given for us is in the words, not just in the transgressions, the iniquity, and the sin, but the opposites that David then mentions, blotting out, washing me, cleansing me. There is grace here. In the midst of willful transgression, in the midst of iniquity, in the midst of sin, there is breathtaking beauty that is given. So that David can cry out, blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David is asking God to wipe away, to remove his transgressions, to to launder, to cleanse. I guess we could say, truthfully, to bleach his stains and then to cleanse him. The interesting thing about this is that David actually uses the word cleanse me here, which is actually a term that was reserved for religious and ritual cleansings. And so what David is saying here is David is connecting his activities and his actions in his confession that what he is saying is, God, because of my activities, I have not only sinned, but I in sinning have made myself unclean, and unless you cleanse me, listen to this, I am barred from temple worship. I am cut off from the activities and the worship of my people. I am cut off from you, God, unless you do this. I can never enter into the temple and offer sacrifices. I can never again sing of your praises. I can never again do any of this unless you do this. And so God is being asked to take a step of breathtaking beauty, a breathtaking beauty of grace. Brothers and sisters, God has not changed in this reality. The Lord Jesus Christ still stands as the hope from which we can make this same plead. He is the one in which we still hope. He is the one in which we can still we can still, our breaths can be taken away at the beauty of his grace because Christ stands as in in complete opposition to everything we deserve. We deserve sin or we deserve wrath. We don't deserve grace. We deserve retribution and, and, and judgment instead of mercy. And yet Christ has been given so that we can rightly call out, O God, blot out, wash, and cleanse me from my transgressions, iniquities, and sins. And we have the confidence that God in Christ does this. Thirdly, then, there's a third step of of this. And that is that we need to openly confess our sin. You see, verses 3 through 6 contains David's confession. Let's read them again for us. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. 
against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin, did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and the hidden part. You shall make me to know wisdom. You notice what David does here in openly confessing our sin. Here's one thing that becomes very apparent if you're looking and watching this. And it's simply, here's the first one. He doesn't hide or hedge his sin. He's not hiding or hedging his sin. He's not trying to, trying to make it less serious than what it actually was, right? He was openly confessing. He was openly acknowledging. And David actually comes back to the words that we see in verses 1 and 2 in his confession. When he says, I'm acknowledging my transgressions, right? I, I'm, I'm saying that it's only against you that I have ultimately sinned, right? Notice this. David is emphatic here, right? David is emphatic when he says, I, I acknowledge or I literally know my sin. It is that he is intimately acquainted with his sin. He knows. He has taken stock of it. This isn't a, oh God, if I have sinned today, please forgive me, right? No, it's not, that's not how that works, Right? He is saying, God, I have sinned. I have committed murder. I have seduced. I have tried to cover up my sin. I have become ritually uh, unclean. I, have, I am cut off from worshiping you unless you act upon your great mercy and grace to help and to fulfill the covenant promises that you have made to me. David does not try to lessen his sin. David says, no, no. No, no. I have sinned. And I acknowledge them. And then he acknowledges the one that he sinned against. And, and many of us would say, but David, how can you say that it's only against the Lord that he has sinned? Because ultimately, that is where all sin is aimed. Yes, certainly, we do sin against brothers and sisters in Christ. But ultimately, who is David acknowledging at this point that he has sinned against? It is God himself. Because he would not have been here and sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba had he not first perverted and been rebellious and sought to follow his own ways, which ultimately led to sin by disobeying God's commands. He would have never been where he is now had he never stopped following and obeying God's commands. And David ultimately gets to the root cause of his sin problem, doesn't he? And for us, hopefully, this isn't, a, this isn't a controversial thing. It shouldn't be, right? Because it's very clear. David says, I, will, I was conceived and born a sinner. I was conceived and born in sin. Not that his mother was, was, was promiscuous prior to her coming together with his father. That's not what David is talking about. David is saying, I, was, I am a descendant of Adam. The first, the first man under which I am under his headship at this point, and I, like those that have come before me, are guilty of sin. And so we would say, right, we would rightly say, we don't just sin because we're sinners. We are sinners, therefore we sin. Jesus says to us in the New Testament, we don't sin because other people make us sin. We sin because it comes within our hearts. 
Our hearts lead us astray. Our hearts are the ones that do this. Our hearts are the ones that lead us to ultimately disobey God's word. It's our hearts, it's, it's, it's from our hearts, Jesus will tell us in the Gospels, from which all kinds of uncleanliness, all kinds of wickedness are born and are birthed. David is saying, I did not come into this world neutral. I did not come into this world neutral. Adam's sin marked me, David says, and I have lived with this all of my life and have actually agreed with his actions by sinning myself. But notice that not only is David not hiding or hedging his sin and openly confessing his sin, but he's also submitting himself to God's word. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, look with me in verse 6 here. What does it say? Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. So what what does David mean there? Well, David recognizes that it is his heart that has gotten him into this mess and into this sin and into this wickedness. And the only result of that is for him to experience and to have a changed heart. And how does that happen? It happens because he has encountered and been changed by the truth of the word of God. He has been transformed and changed. He has been taught wisdom in the innermost parts of who he is by God himself and his truth, his law, his word. God's plan and purpose for David from the womb is ultimately David is saying that he would embrace God's truth and God's knowledge. Luke 23 reminds us, right, 31 and 32 of our constant struggle ourselves because it reveals to us this great hero of the faith who is by the name of Peter, right? Listen to what Jesus even says to Peter, right? As Peter has ultimately said, I will not forsake you. I will go to the grave with you. And Jesus says this, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And we say, we understand well this, this reality that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that there is none good, no, not one. There's none that seek after God, right? Even the best of us fall into great sins and into great offenses, don't we? And yet the truth of the reality is it's because we are sinners but our hope our hope as sinners we are told is found in Christ so that we who have repented and trusted in Christ we have turned away from our sin we have not hedged our sin we have fled to Christ we can cry out knowing that our 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 cries for mercy are heard so that we can say oh God blot out have mercy cleanse me from these things even though we still struggle with this we can now hear the hope of Romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus So we hope and look to Christ. We hope and trust in Christ. Our hope is in Christ, not in keeping the law. Our hope is in Christ, not in trying to be good enough. Our hope is in Christ, not looking and trying to be a better version of ourselves. It is in Christ where we are new creations. The old has been done away with. The new has come in us. 
We are now filled and sealed with the Spirit of God, hoping and trusting in Christ that not based on our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of God, that He will forgive us. But yet, we still must confess this, right? So this leads us to the fourth point, which is simply this in our text. We need to ask God to restore. David says this in verses 7 through 9. David says we must ask for him to restore. And so we do. We ask him to do this. We plead for his mercy and his grace. My brothers and sisters, I, I, I still have much to say. So let, let me just stop here and make some application. And then we'll pick up in next week here in Psalm 51 and finish out, Lord willing. Let me say this. Brothers and sisters, remember that it is only Jesus who can remove the stain of sin. It is only through the cleansing work of Christ that that is applied to our hearts by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this work of God in Christ and forgiving our sins is always evidenced by genuine repentance because we're confessing our sins. We're not hedging our, our sin. We are freely and openly crying out, forgive us of our sin. You see, the Holy Spirit, as he works, and, and I don't, we'll talk more next week about the work of the Holy Spirit here because he does, David does mention the Spirit and his work here, and we need to address it. But brothers and sisters, know that the Spirit of God is never going to lead you just to say, oh God, if I have sinned today, please forgive me. That's not how this works. We openly own and confess our sins. We openly confess this because, brothers and sisters, if we want to see revival in our hearts, revival in our lives, revival in our land, the saints of God, the people of God, had better get serious about repenting. We need to be serious about repentance in our hearts and in our families and in our lives. It is sad that repentance has been oft neglected. It has been often neglected. This is of many things that they may have gotten wrong. The one thing that the Puritans got right was their insistence on holiness and repentance. We must give ourselves to the truth of God's word and get serious about repentance and repenting of our sins as God's people in reforming our lives by God's grace through God's mercy because ultimately it is a work of God in the life of the believer. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, but in the context here and later on in the New Testament, But in the context of the sovereign God of the universe, not just being offended, but providing the sacrifice by which he can then forgive, though he is offended and his offensive, his being offended can be can be changed from being offended to making us children of God, going from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God, we can rejoice in this hope. The debt is paid. The debt is paid in full. The debt is paid in full. And I'll say this. Let me close by simply pointing you and I here. Though David never ultimately saw, though David never ultimately saw or understood completely the finished work of Christ upon Calvary, he certainly understood the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God would send 
one who would ultimately deal with the sin that Adam and Eve had bought and the line of the serpent, the lie of the serpent that would ultimately be, that was ultimately announced, the hope for destroying the lie of the serpent that was ultimately announced in the prophets. And so we can rightly say that Christ was the hope of David as Christ is our hope. So let us look to Christ and let us flee to King Jesus who is the great merciful and forgiver of our sin. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to be serious about repentance, that we would be sons and daughters of the King who genuinely seek repentance in our lives, in our families, and in our hearts, and in our land. Oh God, may we as the people of God seek to repent and be faithful that you may pour out that you may pour out in this gracious work of you granting this God because we know that repentance doesn't come from us it's a work and an act of grace that's given to us by you but God we know that it is the precursor to awakening and revival and so may you grant this God in your mercy Grant us repentance. Grant us this act of mercy upon us as you did to David that we can see an awakening and a revival in our land and in our homes and in our lives that we would faithfully proclaim King Jesus and his hope that he has given to us, not because of us, but because of his sheer mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name.